postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. A world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's Pastor Marcus here, and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Story Church Podcast. This week, we are continuing on our latest Podinar series, Adventism for a Post-Church Generation. And I'm going to dive right into it today because I don't have a lot of time. I got quite a few things I got to get to today. So I'm just going to jump right in. But I did want to add once more that if you are going through this series and you want to get the companion book for it, it is available, guys. You can go on the storychurchproject.com slash store. Look at the book Weird Volution, Adventism for a Post-Church Generation. You can get that from Amazon, a print version. You can get an ebook version. Uh, it, and it accompanies what we are exploring here in the podcast. You can share it with others a little bit easier, especially for those people who aren't as awesome as those of us who listen to and record podcasts. Anyways, um, yeah, let me let me dive right in because in this episode, what I want to do is I want to begin that clearing the table thing that I talked about last time. Uh, what Adventism is not, and let's let's clear that table a bit and see what we're left with, and that's what we're going to look at in the next episode and the one after that is really constructing a vision of an organic Adventism, and then from that we can finally ask the question: How do we reframe this for? the culture. Now, growing up as an Adventist, a lot of people talked as though we had somehow just dropped out of the sky with all of this truth that no one had ever heard of before. And I don't know if you like were exposed to that sort of vision of Adventism or not, but that's definitely my experience. And, and Nicholas Miller, a Professor Nicholas Miller from Andrews University, he expressed this really well uh, when he wrote that some Adventists appear to believe that our founders sat in a room with their Bibles and put together an entirely new set of beliefs and practices, thus building a New Testament church from scratch, end quote. And so, yeah, this is kind of the mentality that I grew up with. And I think that that mentality in itself sets us up for a false vision of Adventism that cannot be missionally reframed for the culture. And so this is what I'm saying, like you got to get rid of the myths, you got to get rid of the lies, and then you can reframe. Um, now for some, what I've discovered is that this mythological view of ourselves, it's it's what makes us special, right? It's everybody else, you know, maybe they had a little bit of truth here and there, but, but you know, for the most part, they were wrong. Um, and then there's us and we are right. Like we've, we've got it all figured out. We've got all the truth. And this kind of mentality, again, um, it really creates a sense of collective narcissism and self-aggrandizement. It places on a, uh, places us rather on a higher platform than others. You know, like don't read books unless they're written by Adventists, and you know, don't go to those churches and don't go to their seminars and don't attend their lectures because they are all just drinking of the wine of Babylon. And then there's us, and we've got it all right. Um, now, do we have to be careful and use discernment? Of course, like that's common sense. But to go to the extreme of saying that 
we're the only ones who've got it figured out is essentially cultish. You're basically telling people, you know, don't use your reasoning powers. Don't use your thinking powers. Don't figure stuff out on your own. Just believe what we say every time we say it and you'll be fine. And that's a really dangerous position to take. Anyways, um, so again, this kind of mentality is, is really the main thing, I think, in a lot of Adventism. It's the main thing from seeing just how relevant and eccentric we really are. So rather than this mentality actually empowering us to have a unique and eccentric message with existential significance for the world, it actually robs us of that. Because then we get caught up um, in all these ridiculous religio-centric debates that people just do not find value in. And, and people can smell it from a mile away. They can, they can smell the, the collective id, the collective ego that characterizes us as a tribe. And it's like, yeah, I think I don't want anything to do with that. Um, and, and then even when we do reach people and we convert people, we convert them on the right or, or on the basis rather of how right we are and how wrong everybody else is. And so we end up with this culture focused on itself and its own ideological structures rather than Jesus. And we end up with this propaganda, basically, that we label theology, this self-praise that we label present truth, and this self-promotion that we label evangelism. Uh, and, and so then our focus isn't on telling the story of Jesus. Our focus is, telling, is on telling the story of us. And this, once again, this cannot be reframed for missional significance. It's impossible, all right? There's no way to take something that is inherently toxic and then reframe it with new language and frameworks and, and give that to the culture, all right? There's, there's no way to do that. It's, you're, you're still giving them the same garbage as you just prettied it up a little bit. And people aren't dumb. They can sense it, they can see it. So what I want us to do then and what I'm really calling us to do is to focus on telling the story of Jesus, all right? And you can tell the story of Jesus and in a way that is renewed and significant, in a way that incorporates the pillars of Adventist thought and why they're meaningful and significant. But the objective is to tell the story of Jesus and arrive at the narrative that God has has blessed us with a story that nobody else is telling and there's nothing wrong with that right there's nothing wrong with saying all right we have something to say that no one else is saying and want to say it with passion with conviction like there's nothing wrong with that and if anyone listening to this podcast thinks oh but that's narcissistic too then no it's not like you are completely wrong okay there is absolutely nothing narcissistic about knowing and believing that we have something to offer the market of ideas that other people are not communicating. There's nothing wrong with that. When it becomes narcissistic is when we then take that notion and use it to aggrandize our sense of self-importance and our institutional branding, all right? That's when it becomes problematic because that's when you start defending how awesome you are by attacking how ugly everybody else is. And it's, it's kind of like the boyfriend who's like, you know, really jealous. So he's always criticizing all the other guys and talking about how terrible they are because he's trying 
trying to make himself feel better about his own insecurities. And that's essentially what we're doing when we're constantly barraging other denominations and other ideologies and structures and tribes. We're basically saying we feel so insecure about our own value and significance that we have to take everyone else and we have to chop them down just so that we can stand out a little bit. And this is fundamentally flawed. All right. So I believe that we can have a really healthy perspective of our own beauty, of our otherness, of what makes us unique and significant, and that that is not in itself inherently narcissistic. And we can take that beauty and we can say, hey, here's what we bring to the market of ideas. Here's what we bring to the conversation. Here's the uniqueness and the beauty that we have to offer. Let's consider this. Let's wrestle with this together and see what God reveals to us collectively as a movement of believers in Jesus. And if we had engaged a conversation like that from the get-go, of course we still would have had people attack us and dislike us. There's no way you can avoid that. But we would have had people attack us and dislike us for who we really are rather than the caricature that we have come up with, the false version of ourselves that we have come up with. And I don't mind if people don't like me for who I really am, but if you don't like me for someone I'm not, that upsets me. Because hey, if you're going to hate Pastor Marcus because of what Pastor Marcus actually believes, cool. But if you're going to hate Pastor Marcus because of something that Pastor Marcus doesn't actually believe, but you think he believes, we have a problem, right? And I think that's what's happened with Adventism is we've, we've engineered this vision of ourselves that's not really true. And then other people react to that and, and reject that. And it's tragic because they've rejected the false version of ourselves that we've engineered. And I think that that's, that's really tragic. Um, so again, though, I, I do want to emphasize the point that there is something really eccentric about the story that we tell as a tribe. And, and I, you know, I grew up believing that Adventism was this unique faith tribe. And, and that is still true. All right. That is definitely still true. Um, but here's the thing that I want to peel back on. All right. We are unique. We do have something eccentric to say, but this idea that what we're communicating is entirely unheard of. That it doesn't stand the test of scrutiny. So you can imagine my surprise when I discovered that nearly all of our beliefs were neatly spelled out and embraced long before there was an Ellen White or a Joseph Bates or or an Adventist church altogether. Um, so in a sense, while I just spent some time talking about our eccentricness, and I'm going to talk about that again in the future, I want to first begin by knocking back, by pushing back against our originality, by saying we're not actually that original. So let's begin there. All right, let's begin to uh, dissolve and deconstruct the mythology of Adventist originality with this notion that we're not actually that original. Now, when I say we're not that original, I want to wrestle with this in two categories. The first is our beliefs, and then the second is our culture. So let's begin with, with beliefs. Some of these you're probably already familiar with, and they won't be surprising, but others might surprise you. So of course, we all know that other Christians outside of ourselves, um, they, they believe in Jesus, they believe in the Bible, they believe in the second coming. And we're probably all aware that other denominations also embrace the Trinity, the deity of Jesus, the gospel, uh, the doctrine of the church, the eternal kingdom. Um, we, we recognize that. But what I didn't know until I began to look into it was how much deeper our similarities actually go. So for example, Adventists believe that God is love 
and that as a God of love, he has granted free will to all of humanity so that we can choose to love him and serve him in return without being forced to do so, right? That is fundamentally the substrate, the building block of the great controversy narrative. And what I discovered is that this belief is essentially known as Arminian theology, and it permeates the Christian world, right? It originated with the Dutch reformer Jacobus Arminius in the 1500s, and it continues to be the view held by various Wesleyan and Arminian Baptist denominations, all right? So this Arminian approach to scripture then is essentially, like fundamentally, a foundational concept without which Adventism simply would not exist, all right? It is a core teaching, it is an imperative to our identity, and yet we didn't make it up. It was around centuries before we arrived on the scene. The great controversy motif, and I've already mentioned this, um, it's also not unique to us, right? We talk about the great controversy quite a lot, and I think it's a beautiful aspect of our narrative that we communicate with a lot of passion, but John Wesley, the founder of Methodism is the guy who deserves the credit um, for, for popularizing the Great Controversy theme. Now, John Wesley referred to the Great Controversy as Scripture's aesthetic theme, all right? Scripture's aesthetic theme. And like Adventists, Wesley had a profound fascination and interest in discovering the truth about the character of God in scripture. And this is what Wesley was attempting to communicate through scripture's aesthetic theme. He was attempting to communicate a defense of God's character of love, which is what Jacobus Arminius had begun in the 1500s through Arminian theology, is a defense of God's character of love over against the lies that other theological systems had perpetuated about God. Theological systems like Calvinism that teach that God is raw power and that he predestines who goes to heaven and hell because he's all-powerful and everything that happens is because he determined it. Arminians were pushing back against it, saying, no, this paints God as a tyrant and really the truth about God is that he's a God of love and that he grants freedom and that sin is a willful rebellion by an angel in heaven, you know, Lucifer and then that trickled down to the earth. Basically the great controversy, right? And John Wesley really pushed this and popularized this with scripture's aesthetic theme. So he began his search with the goodness of God and using his Arminian theology, Wesley discovered that God created all things good and that the rebellion of Satan due to the misuse of his free will is what led to the angelic fall and consequently to the fall of man. So again, like Arminianism, Wesley's aesthetic theme set the foundation and spelled out many of the details that Seventh-day Adventists rely on when discussing our great controversy narrative. Uh, let's move on to the next one, all right? So like Adventists also believe that salvation is a free gift of God. It's not of works, which is basically something every Protestant denomination believes. But we also believe that sanctification is an integral part of salvation, not just justification. The two can't be separated. One qualifies us for heaven, right? Justification, and the other transforms us into the kinds of people who would like to live there forever, right? So this is sanctification. Um, and again, this isn't unique to Adventism. John and Charles Wesley, again, the founders of the Wesleyan movement, popularized this unification of justification and sanctification and emphasized holiness of life more so than their predecessors. And by the way, this continues to be the view 
held by many Methodist, Pentecostal, Nazarene, and Wesleyan churches. So if you hear Adventists running around saying, we alone have the true gospel, you know, because of our synergizing justification and sanctification, I've got news for you. Just about every Wesleyan denomination that includes Pentecostals and Nazarenes and, of course, the Wesleyans and the Methodists, like, they all believe that. And they all teach that. They all teach the synergy of sanctification and justification because this is part of the bedrock of the holiness movements that John Wesley is the founder of. Now, what this means is that the doctrine of once saved, always saved, which Adventists reject, it also has zero place in Lutheran theology, in Methodist theology, in Pentecostal theology, and in Wesleyan traditions. And so for many years, especially when I was a kid, I was led to believe that the only people who rejected the belief of once saved, always saved, which was referred to as cheap grace, uh, were the Adventists. That we were the only ones who rejected it. That, that all the evangelicals believe in once saved, always saved, and cheap grace, and we're the only ones who reject this. Um, and so you can imagine my surprise when I discovered that all Arminian denominations reject once saved, always saved. All right, literally all of them. In fact, as far as I'm aware, the only denomination on the planet that teaches once saved, always saved is the Southern Baptist denomination. There is no other denomination that teaches that. And when I say Southern Baptist denomination, to my understanding, it's the Southern Baptist denomination in America, all right? Obviously, Baptists don't just exist in America, but as far as I'm aware, it's the American ones that really emphasize this one saved, always saved thing. But outside of that one denomination, there is no, there are so many other evangelical tribes that do not teach one saved, always saved, all right? Um, and so this idea is false. There are many, many denominations like Adventists who embrace the beauty of synergizing justification and sanctification and who maintain the concept of free will even after entering into a relationship with Jesus. So we're still free to walk away, essentially. That's not a uniquely Adventist thing. So again, for those of you who would like to say that Adventism has some unique take on the gospel that's completely unheard of, uh, we sort of don't. Um, so in addition, the teaching that God's Spirit initiates the salvation process in every person and awakens us to our need of Him, which is a reality we can't awaken ourselves to, uh, that grace can be resisted and that the heart hardened against the Holy Spirit and that faith is a gift of God as much as grace, we're all popularized by Methodism, you guys. Again, this goes back to Wesley. So again, Adventism's salvation story is not actually uniquely Adventist. We didn't like sit in a room or pioneers and just come up with it by reading Bible verses. These were well-established doctrines. Uh, what about the doctrine of perfection of Christian character? I can hear some of the conservatives saying, oh, but the doctrine of perfection, that, that's from us. And by the way, uh, do not confuse the doctrine of perfection with the doctrine of perfectionism. Okay, they, they are distinct. Perfectionism, last generation theology, that stuff's totally not cool, toxic. Uh, nasty stuff. The doctrine of perfection, however, is not the same thing, okay? And the doctrine of perfection um, also finds its basis in the teachings of Wesley 
and continues to be held by many who self-identify as Arminian Wesleyans. Okay, um, So what is the doctrine of perfection? Is that the belief that God is fully restoring us to the image of His Son, and that this is a process that we engage in. It's not instantaneous. It's a journey that we navigate. Although Wesley did think there was an instantaneous factor to it that Ellen White rejected, but essentially it's a process. It's a journey. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an adventure that we engage in with God where He restores us to the image that He originally designed us for. Um, and so this is, again, the doctrine of perfection. And a lot of Adventists think that we're the only ones who believe that. But uh, as a matter of fact, anyone who self-identifies as Arminian Wesleyan typically believes in the doctrine of Christian perfection. Um, and it's pretty tragic because a lot of Adventists actually don't realize just how similar our faith is to the Pentecostal traditions rooted in Wesley's thought. And so many of us think of Pentecostals exclusively in relation to, you know, running around and jumping and speaking in tongues and being really wild. And we fail to realize that we hold so much in common with them and that the Wesleyan churches as a whole are very similar to Adventist churches when it comes to our understanding of the character of God and the sanctified life. Now, moving on from that, I think it's also important to recognize that the Adventist view of the Old and New Covenant, the tension between the Old and New Covenant, um, our view of that is pretty identical to the views espoused by the Second London Baptist Confession. And I wrote another book called The Whole in Adventism, which goes into that in way more detail. But the Second London Baptist Confession is held by the Reformed Baptist churches. And they, you know, both Adventists and all the Reformed Baptist churches who hold to the Second London Baptist Confession, we reject infant baptism. We teach that the New Testament and Old Testament saints were both saved by grace. We both teach that the Old Testament nation of Israel typified the church and met its fulfillment in the church. We both also teach that the law is divided into three categories, the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. And surprisingly, we both also teach that the Ten Commandments are perpetually binding upon believers, even under the new covenant. And this includes the command to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. All right. So all Reformed Baptist churches believe this, you guys. Go back and read the Second London Baptist Confession, and it's all there. Now, they might disagree on what day the Sabbath is, but the basic theological premise that uh, allows us to believe that the law is perpetual, even in the New Covenant, is also part deeply rooted in their theological view. Uh, the doctrine of the Sabbath as a sign between New Covenant believers and God is also not unique to Adventism. The Puritans taught that Sabbath observance was an enduring sign between God and His people, and they showed up way before Adventists. Um, and they also understood the Sabbath with covenant until overtones uh, that implied a whole way of life as well as faithfulness to God. Now, if you get the book um, Weird Evolution, uh, a lot of these are actually quotes like that one I just read. It's a quote um, from the Puritans themselves, and you can actually get the, the source of those quotes in, in the book. Um, now, even the doctrine of the Sabbath as a seal or a test at the end of time is not unique to Adventism. Uh, there was a Puritan who became a Seventh-day Baptist. His name was Thomas Tillam. And he understood the Sabbath as a seal at the end of time in contrast to the mark of the beast in Revelation 12, about 200 years before Ellen White, Joseph Bates, or Uriah Smith popularized it among, you know, the, the Adventist believers. Um, in addition... We share views with other denominations on baptism by immersion only, the Lord's Supper as an act of remembrance, and spiritual communion with God and church discipline. We also share views on religious liberty, the separation of church and state, creation, the visible return of Jesus, and reject a literal and central end-time role for national Israel, believing instead that the church is 
the new Israel. Again, all of this goes back to Second London Baptist Confession and also the Westminster Confession that many Baptists, Reformed Baptists, um, believe and teach. And even when it comes to the whole idea of the separation of church and state, this goes all the way back to the Radical Reformation with the Anabaptists. And even to this day, their heirs like uh, the, the Quakers, right? They still fundamentally believe and, and teach this. Now, even the views we often consider to be unique are not that unique. For example, our belief in the perpetuity of spiritual gifts, including the gift of prophecy, is shared by many Pentecostal and Wesleyan churches. Our views on the temporality of hell and annihilationism of the wicked over against you know eternal torment has been gaining acceptance and popularity in evangelical circles for many years now just check out the movement google the movement rethinking hell and you'll 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 get up to speed on that um, and our interpretive method for apocalyptic prophecy right historicism is the historic method used by the reformers when interpreting prophecy so we didn't make that up either uh, as a result our views on the antichrist and the papacy they they didn't originate with us. Uh, what about the doctrine that, you know, nobody else outside of Adventism believes, you know, like 1844, the investigative judgment? Uh, well, I'm kind of sorry to burst your bubble, but it's not that unique either. Adventist scholar Gerhard Fandel identifies Lutheran Joseph A. Seiss, Catholic author F. Dusterwold, and Protestant interpreter T. Robinson among some of the non-Adventists who have arrived at a pre-Advent judgment from the book of Daniel. Now, their views may not necessarily be identical in every single little um, tick, but the key thoughts are all there. But even more importantly, the entire doctrine of the investigative judgment is rooted in Arminian Wesleyan theology, and it's actually impossible to arrive at a doctrine like the investigative judgment without Arminian Wesleyan foundations. The difference is that for many Arminian Wesleyans, the judgment takes place upon death when the soul goes to heaven, because you know many of them believe in the immortal soul. Uh, and whereas for Adventists, because the soul sleeps, uh, then this means that we can place the judgment at a certain point in human history, rather than every single time someone dies and their soul goes to heaven, their judgment takes place there. Uh, we can take more seriously the text that says that God has appointed a day for judgment. Uh, so again, while the investigative judgment as a whole may be an Adventist concept that is framed in a way that only we teach, it's built on entirely non-Adventist foundations of Arminian Wesleyan theology and soul sleep theology, which was taught by reformers like William Tyndale and many Anabaptists, and surprisingly, Martin Luther himself seems to have been in that camp. Now, some would respond by arguing that Adventism's prophetic narrative is definitely unique. After all, we believe that our movement is foretold in prophecy, and using the historicist method, we arrive at conclusions in the book of Daniel and Revelation that nobody else has. Uh, and that's true, all right? That's true. I'm not here to say that Adventism is not unique. What I'm trying to do is peel back how unique we like to think of ourselves. We exaggerate the uniqueness to a degree that's, that's pretty intense. Um, but again, and so even though we do have unique elements, here's what I want you to understand, that even then, and it's including this historicist uh, sort of apocalyptic views, uh, we arrive at these conclusions by relying entirely on non-Adventist foundations. So we didn't invent historicism, and that's the point. Even the things we proudly think of as ours are built entirely on ideas that came from them. If, uh, if we want to use that language, which I don't particularly like, but, you know, just to keep the conversation simple and easy to follow. Um, in fact, even the doctrine of the remnant church, which is intimately connected to the three angels' messages, is beginning to gain acceptance among evangelicals in the Trump 
era. Uh, so current events surrounding the Trump administration and its relationship to American Christianity has caused many evangelicals to abandon the movement and to begin considering the arrival of a purer faith free of political hunger. And, you know, one of those guys is Matt Chandler, who's a popular evangelical pastor, um, who's envisioning a coming persecution fueled by an apostate Protestantism and aimed at a faithful remnant church. And, and there's an actual source that you can watch a, a interview. I believe he did an interview with Vice where he talks about the true church having to face the wrath of what is coming because of the shifts that have taken place in American evangelicalism. So by the time you get to the end of it, it's kind of like, all right, so do we believe anything that's truly original? Um, and the answer is yes, we do in a sense, uh, but we're going to talk about that next time. Um, and I also want to revisit some of the Adventist beliefs that, while rooted in non-Adventist thought, are still fairly unique to us, you know, like the three angels' messages, investigative judgment, end-time events, sanctuary, etc. Um, but what I wanted to do here is I wanted to really just help us see that even though there is something eccentric about us, we need to chill out a little bit, all right? We're not that unique. Um, now, I want to flip over to the other category. I, I wanted to start with beliefs, and I wanted to flip over to the category of culture, all right? But before I do that, I want to just make one more point. This mythical view of our uniqueness is one of the things that kills Adventism's missional capacity. And so long as we believe that our unique message to the world is something other than Jesus, we will never fulfill our purpose. God didn't raise up a movement and bless it like he has this one just so that we can run around telling the world that day seven is the right day of worship instead of day one, that ghosts aren't real, or that the Pope is a baddie, all right? He did not pull our pioneers out of the ashes of disappointment so that we could settle on proclaiming that on October 22, 1844, a legal proceeding began in a land far, far away, or that if you eat fried chick instead of fried chick, you will get an extra 10 years to enjoy more fried chick, all right? Our ideas are not that unique, and what we have to say to the world is not that original or relevant. It's just the same old religious drum beating to a different beat. And if we want to say anything meaningful to this dying post-church culture that surrounds us, all that we say must be rooted in and pointing toward the person of Jesus. Anything less than this, and we're just talking about ourselves to ourselves until we're so full of ourselves that we delude one another into believing that we are actually that important. And so again, like, look, don't freak out. In chapter three, I'm going to dive more fully into what our unique message is and why it matters so much. But I really want to emphasize this, that, you know, Jesus is our message. It's, and, and so we have to lose this big head that we have. Whatever unique message God has given us, and he has, it's got to be centered in Jesus or else everything we have to say is of no value at all. All right. So what about culture? Adventist culture, again, is not that unique. And I want to, I want to, um, I think this is, uh, I think I'm quoting uh, Martin Weber here. Forgive me for not knowing exactly where the quote comes from, but it is, it is uh, annotated in the book. Um, so again, our culture is not that unique either. For example, and here I am quoting, our founders took many of our beliefs and worship practices from a variety of groups, 
suppressed them through a biblical filter and adopted and adapted those that remained. These include midweek prayer meetings. Oh, wow. We didn't come up with that. No, we copied it from the Sunday churches. You know, the same Sunday churches that we go around saying, don't copy them. Well, pretty much everything we do is copied from them. Um, so midweek prayer meetings, Sabbath school, which we copied from the popular Sunday schools of the day, especially age segregated ministry. Where did we get that from? We didn't get age segregated ministry from the Bible. We got it from the age segregated Sunday churches that were basically building age-segregated Sunday schools because that was the trend in the day. Uh, so we copied that from them. Also, camp meetings, we didn't come up with that. The Order of the Divine Service, uh, did, did we originate that? No, we did not. Hymn singing doesn't come, originate from us. Offering appeals, quarterly communion services, and lots of other stuff. And I believe that's Martin Weber who I was just quoting there. Like Basically, so much of what we do in Adventist culture comes from other denominations. Um, interestingly, uh, like I said before, a lot of Adventists today act as though learning and applying practices from other denominations is a compromise of our faith. And what they fail to realize is that our faith has never had practices uniquely its own. Rather, our pioneers replicated them from the non-Adventist faith traditions from which they came. All right. Um, in light of all this, it's 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 also important to know, and I, I think uh, I believe this is Martin Weber again, um, Ellen White, right? Looking at Ellen White, she Ellen White joined forces with the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which was a group of Protestant prohibitions, some of which, by the way, were pushing for Sunday laws. Okay, and she still worked with them, and she still recommended that we work with them. She spoke at their rallies. She recommended that some of our best Adventist talent should work for the organization. She entrusted her signature book, Steps to Christ, to a non Seventh Day Adventist. Publica uh, publisher, uh, which happened to be Dwight Moody's brother. Um, you know Dwight Moody, the leading Sunday preacher of the day? Um, and she thought so highly of Adventist theologians and historians that she incorporated their insights into her own books. And that's definitely Martin Weber. Um, Ellen White also spoke to her largest audiences in non-Adventist gatherings, in the pulpits of other denominations, and said that some of these contemporary non-Adventist commentaries that she had in her bookshelf were among her best books. Uh, church historian George Knight, which many of you are probably familiar with, uh, he wrote this. It was that same ironic spirit that led Ellen White to suggest that Adventist pastors should become acquainted with other pastors in their district, letting them know that Adventists are reformers but not bigots. Her advice was to focus on the common ground that Adventism shared with others and to present the truth as it is in Jesus rather than to run down other churches. Using such techniques, Adventist pastors could come near to the ministers of other denominations. Now, on top of this, uh, the fact that our culture as Adventists is not unique within the Christian world, it's also not unique in our world, period. So, for example, health and plant-based lifestyles are being promoted by atheists and New Age proponents with greater effectiveness than we have had. Um, our traditional music, our hymns and traditional music, uh, our, our traditional dress codes, our traditional styles, our traditional architecture are all borrowed from secular European Victorian culture. So this irritates me when people act like dressing like a white European is somehow holier than, you know, because it's, that's essentially what it is. Like we didn't get the stuff from scripture. It's just the culture that we're familiar with. And our views on the futility of human empire are shared and promoted with greater intensity by social justice proponents in the political sphere. So this grandiose self-centered idea that Adventists are this group of people who emerge from a vacuum and have developed an ideology and practice unheard of in Christian or world history 
totally needs to be laid to rest, you guys. The relevance of Adventism has nothing to do with Adventism. And so long as we keep pointing to ourselves and talking about ourselves, we will continue to hemorrhage youth and converts by the gallons. We're not that unique. We're not that weird. We're just another bunch of human beings traveling through life in search of meaning, significance, and a hope found only in the person of Jesus. And the sooner we recapture that humble, self-abandoning, and Christ-centered picture, the sooner we will see an explosion of mission take place in our local churches. All right, so how does this affect mission? Um, Now, I'm going to explore the contributions and unique elements Adventism brings to the conversation of God in the next chapter. But for now, we can clearly see that Adventism is not some unheard of faith tradition with no roots in historic Christian thought or culture. Quite the opposite, our worldview is deeply embedded and indebted to the Protestant reformers that came before us and even those that exist today. As a result, we don't really have to the right to act as if we alone have truth. Rather, we can celebrate our common heritage with our evangelical brothers and sisters. We can worship alongside, pray with and for them, enjoy their biblical resources, learn from their experiences and challenges in the spiritual life. And of course, we can bring in the unique elements that make us who we are. So this idea that Adventism is this uber unique thing that must not be tainted by contact with a non-Adventist world is one of the myths that kills local church mission. If a pastor gains inspiration by reading a non-Adventist book on church growth and reintroduces it to the church, some people write it off immediately and oppose it because all of its ideas aren't from an Adventist. If an opportunity arises to work with a non-Adventist denomination in some community project, some people refuse because, hey, they are not Adventist. But apart from these dramatic examples, the very thought process involved in thinking of yourself as better than others kills a person's missional excitement. You simply cannot have a grandiose view of yourself and be a blessing to others at the same time. One or the other has to win out. And in the end, entire local churches that have a grandiose view of themselves, mission always suffers. So just to wrap this episode up, um, because I got a bunch of stuff I got to go do. So um, I apologize if I was maybe going a bit too fast today. I just know my time is limited. Uh, But just to wrap this episode up, again, we need to clear this stuff from the table and clear out all the myths about our uniqueness and our grandiose view of ourselves. And once we do that, we can then take a clearer look at what actually makes us unique, what actually makes us who we are, and what actually gives relevance and meaning to our message to the world. And when we have that divorced of all the sectarian nonsense, now we can reframe for the culture. So that's where we're headed, guys. Um, I'm excited. We're getting there step by step. Don't forget to share this podcast with someone, listen to it with someone. It's deeply important that you listen to this podcast with someone else so you can discuss some of the items and things that come up as you go. So just to close, I'm going to give you some questions that you can chat with whoever you're listening to this with, and um, and then I will catch you next week. So question number one, were there any points on theology that surprised you in this chapter? Something you thought was unique to Adventists and have found out it's not that unique to us. Number two, how do you feel about the suggestion that Adventist culture has always borrowed from non-Adventist culture? Number three, do you agree that a grandiose view of ourselves results in practical mission detriment? 
or do you disagree? Number four, what changes has this episode inspired in you? What, what changes would you like to see in your local church based on what you have heard? And finally, change only happens when we put one foot in front of the other and begin the journey. So how will you lead the changes that you want to see? All right, guys, thank you for hanging out with me. I will catch you next week. Take care and God bless.